Yeah, like Sammy's five years old and like Olivia's dog is like 10 weeks old. And Sammy's just a bit like, yeah, it's a small dog. What, like, get over it. He's like, not that interested. And everyone else around him is like, ah, the little puppy, the little, oh, it's so cute. <laughs> and oh. Bees is like, meh. Yeah. As much as I'd like to chat about Stanley for <laughs> about an hour. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, me and Ims are in, or my partner, Remy, we're in the process of trying to adopt a dog at the minute, but. Oh, really? It's proven, yeah, it's proven a little bit more difficult than we anticipated, but we shall see. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, we'll end of dog chat. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. it. Need to be strict. himself, uh, Crispin of Mr. Jones. Thank you very much for joining me. Hello, nice, nice to be here. Thank you for having me on. No, not a problem at all. Um, as is tradition, we need to, to start with a wristwatch check, if that's okay with you. What are you uh, currently rocking? So I'm wearing the Mr. Jones watches, the Indefatigable Sphinx, which ah. I don't know if you saw, it was quite a limited edition that we did. Um, if I pull out the winding crown, you can see. Um, oh, is that the one where the Sphinx, its head changes and stuff like that? Yes, exactly. I realise I'm winding it backwards because I'm seeing it in reverse. <laughs> so exactly, yeah, the Sphinx's head changes on different hours and also the eye at the top nice. looks around. And, and then on the sort of three o'clock area, you've got the hour indicator. Mm, that's is that a, uh, is that 38 mil still? No, this is bigger. This is like... 42 I think uh, this was a case of, of the XL ones maybe no it's not even like so th this jump out module we um licensed from Christopher Ward uh -huh. um, like Christopher Ward himself got like I emailed him asking about the jump out module because they developed one quite a few years back and um, which they used for a short while and I'm, I'm not sure they even use anymore um but I yeah I wrote to them and just said would you license us some like would you sell us some basically um mm. and like that afternoon or that evening christopher ward himself like emailed me back and said i'm oh, very interested uh, like why don't we come around and have a chat and stuff so i was a bit like all right um <laughs> but but he was super sweet like super generous with his time and stuff and um like i'm allowed to say that we licensed it from them as well because i did check all of that you know they were uh, super okay. happy to be associated with us um, but I had to design a special case for it because the module sits on top of like a ETA twenty eight twenty four type movement, okay. but it adds it adds a bit of thickness to the overall. Um, yeah. So we simply wouldn't. We did try like making a deeper bezel for one of these stock cases that we do that fits a twenty eight twenty four, but it just it wasn't just, the it. proportions. Like, yeah, just a weird. The proportions looked all wrong because it had to have so much more chunk above. But I actually mm. really like it. I because it was like it was the watch that was in the development for the longest amount of time for us and it was I like I don't know exactly when we started but each watch we do has a consecutive number for like like a sort of stock number like a reference number, number kind of thing exactly yeah so this this watch is number 88 by the time we released it the watch that came up before it was number 116 so it was like it was at least three and a half years, if not longer. Wow. And there was oh, so a bunch of little things like the hands we 
we did and then I decided I didn't like them and then I like yeah with hindsight you're just like well why didn't we should have just like accelerated it all but mm. it was also we were slightly uncomfortable with it because it was because of the price point that Christopher Ward sell that module at we wanted to respect their pricing like we didn't want to license it off them and then do it for less not not yeah. saying even that we could have done like with the the, the kind of costs of the yeah, production of and stuff but so we were quite unconfident that we we about releasing watch at that price point because it came out and it was um 1500 pounds right fair. um so so for us it's like a, it was a totally different thing um because you know our stock price point is what, 250 pounds yeah like was, is, is that, was that the, the like most some, expensive some one you've done then yeah absolutely yeah yeah mm. and we did it as an edition of 25 but and so wow. okay this really long time like leading up to it edition of 25 which in reality is actually 23 because i've got one and edward carvel monaghan who did the artwork for it has one yeah. so 23 was the reality but we released <laughs> it and we really had no idea like how is this going to go and, and when i say released it like it goes live on the website at a certain point and we also send an email out to our mailing list and then yeah. you know start to put it on social media and stuff um but i think our thinking was that it would maybe we'll sell a couple on day one it would be the sort of halo product that would it would sit above the price point of everything else but it's a kind of showcase for quite you know it, it's it's got more sort of more complicated technical stuff than we would normally do yeah um and and we were kind of happy. We thought, yeah, this would make sense. Like it it can it can sort of have a role, even if it doesn't sell out, like because we don't expect it to sell out. But um all twenty-three sold out in a matter of hours, like wow. I think three hours or something. It was oh, that's amazing. We were really like, I mean, genuinely like taken back because we mm. thought it's so different from our price point, it's so different from what our customer base would normally be expecting to spend and stuff so yeah i mean obviously really happy and then yeah. a nice problem to have and actually we are looking to reissue it there's quite a long lead time on that jump hour module so we will reissue a new version of it as part of our permanent collection in the i guess early summer mid midsummer maybe it sort of it, depends on it must have been nice like as you said that kind of apprehension and almost a bit of anxiety about putting something out at that price point and then for it to just kind of fly out that must have been such a nice mo like a reaffirming moment for the company I guess as well yeah absolutely yeah and like the day of a release is like a really special moment in the company like we do like our, our basic model is we'll do any new design as a limited edition right a sort of numbered edition of generally 100 pieces sometimes 50 or in this case like 25 yeah. Um, and we would aim at the start of the year to do eight of those per year so one per month but we skip january december and normally august or one of the summer months just because mm. people are on holiday and stuff <laughs> um but but so it's it's actually a really nice um sort of moment in the year each time we do a limited edition release like there's a kind of build up to it there's all the deadline coming and we've got to get all the the watches assembled and the photography done and the you know the story written up and all of the sort of collateral material and it's yeah it's just a really nice moment like that day of the release and then everyone's always keen to know like how many is it sold like because the releases always happen at midday so people are always like asking how yeah how's it going how many were sold <laughs> <laughs> now must be uh, the 
do you mainly do limited editions or do you have some that kind of are always being produced like how, how does that work with them so so each watch starts life as a limited edition if it's popular and popular is a kind of a kind of arbitrary measure like it because all of the limited editions sell out I, th I think all of the limited editions we've done for the last probably three four years have sold out on the day of release so all of them are popular but we take a kind of view on whether we think they have longevity also how many people email after it's sold out saying are you gonna make any more but the basic model is if a limited edition is popular then we update the design like we, we always think the limited edition is the kind of director's cut like the first part of the design the, the and then we'll reissue it with a slightly tweaked design so anything we weren't 100 satisfied with on the first one that's from our side but also from almost all of the watches we do are like a collaboration with an outside artist or illustrator it's also getting their feedback like what their feeling is um and and also if there are comments on like our facebook and stuff of things people particularly liked or particularly mm -hmm. didn't like for example yeah. so yeah limited edition if it's really popular then it gets reissued and becomes part of the permanent collection and then we keep making it um for as long so the reissued models permanent collection are not numbered the limited edition models are always numbered and um, mm. it's like and it's been our our sort of way of releasing watches since the very start um it was something that i kind of stumbled actually i i will rewind and give you like the early history of mr jones watches even though you haven't asked for it but you're getting it anyway yeah, there um, we go <laughs> like so my background is in fine art i have a must mm. i have a undergraduate degree in sculpture and then a master's degree in a thing called interaction design interaction design is kind of creative use of technology and i graduated from the royal college of art where i studied that in 2000 so creative use of technology in 2000 was kind of a different thing than perhaps people might yeah, understand God, the, today the landscape must have changed so dramatically uh, since then right like we we were freaks within the college because we sat in front of computers all day every day and literally nobody else like not even the graphic designers did that and you know we were really i think people thought we were i don't know what they thought we did in there like because most people didn't have an email address or if they had wow. an email address it was one they like they didn't have email on their phone they didn't have mm. email at home but they might check it like it's a totally different world um but so creative use of technology i was making so after i graduated from that i was making sort of one-off pieces for exhibitions and stuff um that were sort of playful sort of provocative things about our relationship to technology so for example mm. i made a series of mobile phones that all sort of flipped the way you interacted with them to make them less annoying for the people around you so okay. this was like so year 2000 mobile phone use like really mushroomed and all of a sudden there were like lots of people like you know doing stupid things like on the tube where they like checking all their different ringtones that preload oh, on the man. phone like it was just like the etiquette around mobile phone use hadn't just wasn't there because people mm -hmm. never had them before and and people were having these sort of loud conversations like on the bus when everyone else is silent just it was it was a really like intrusive sort of moment socially you know just mm. in in the sort of cultural life so we made this set of mobile phones that were designed to to change people's behavior to make it less annoying so for example one of them was shaped like a, a kind of trumpet 
and you to dial a number you had to play the tune of the number so each number was mapped to a different note so okay. it, the idea the idea being that it would make you very self-conscious about the act of dialing because you'd have to do this sort of performance <laughs> and and so therefore you'd seek out kind of quiet or more private space and it would you know naturally so it was so when i say like creative use of technology it it wasn't like i didn't design an iphone or like anything mm -hmm. practical i designed provocative objects that were designed to to make people think about how we use technology or what how like what are the consequences of technology perhaps yeah so i did that for like five years i was super happy doing it but there was no money in it and it would have worked if i wanted a career in academia because i could have done it alongside a sort of teaching career and stuff but i i did some teaching and i never found it that interesting so after five years i was looking at a way to make my practice more sustainable i'd made this set of um mobile phones and then later a set of watches like the watch i was so my background i was never the kid who grew up tinkering with mechanical watches and mm. his grandfather was a watchmaker and he showed me like none of that i really had little interest in watches my interest was as a piece of wearable technology that has persisted and wearable technology like early 2000s there was a bit of a moment where different companies were trying to introduce um, technology into garments or or I'm trying to think what the kind of examples were they were just sort of odd not very sympathetic sort of I, I don't know like these companies with a bit of money there's this new landscape technology let's make a jacket with built-in speakers or let's make a jacket okay. with built-in controls for an mp3 player or something like not not very sophisticated like a uh, a hoodie with built-in headphones on the inside or something. so yeah. exactly exactly yeah. this kind of thing which you know it has its place but it's it just wasn't that interesting and i was really conscious at the time that you know if any technology that is five years old like this the pace of technological development at the moment any technology that's five years old looks ancient and 10 years old it looks like how could anyone ever have used that? It's ridiculous. But but the wristwatch is really interesting because it's got a at least 120 year history. And then if you include the pocket watch, I can you send that back 400 years or so? Yeah. And that's that's really interesting. So a, a piece of technology that persists, but also that's worn on the body. And it's it's I mean, it's partly because I I I think a lot of the reason for it is that it's a piece of male jewelry. And men don't have many opportunities to wear jewellery, so it it persists because it it's so jewellery is is not just adornment; it's like an expression of personality or mm. taste or wealth or like all these kind of um, it's kind of like deep, deeply deeply kind of personal, isn't it? Like yeah, exactly, yeah. It's it's a kind of personal symbol, like it's um, mm. um something. I mean, I noticed you're you're tattooed, and I would say like tattoos occupy like a similar. So space yeah. is kind of body, bodily adornment and, and self-expression and you know that your tattoo tells people something about you you know and on the most sort of basic level mm, so absolutely i made i made this set of one-off watches that were so i was trying to sort of flip the the um the message of them a bit so rather than them being conveyors of your status or wealth or taste they told other things about you. So one watch had a built-in lie detector. So if it detected you were lying, it would flash. And the idea <laughs> being awesome. that, that rather than a watch that, you know, 
told people you were very successful, like you're very flashy, it you know revealed something more more fundamental about you as a person, like how truthful you were. Wow. Um, so and and I mean they so they were all built as like working objects, but it so the lie detector was a thing called galvanic skin response, which is it's a fairly primitive form of lie detection. It's basically if you become stressed, you start to sweat a little bit more on the surface of your skin. And if you have, you know, electrodes connected to it, you can detect that change in, in mm. sweating level and stuff. So it, like, it wasn't like I solved any engineering problems and like came up with some elegant solution, but it, it was a provocative thing to, you know. You weren't getting calls from the government to start handing them out uh, <laughs> on trials. Oh, oddly things. not, <laughs> not quite. <laughs> um, but so, so one was with the built-in lie detector. There was another one that alternated the time with the message, remember you will die. Mm. And the idea with this was that it would, it would be a bit more of a sort of grounding device. So rather than a watch that every time you look at it, you're sort of pumped up and you feel good about yourself. It maybe brings you down a peg. It, it yeah. kind of um, not so, quite yeah, undermines you, but, but keep, keeps you grounded. A memento mori, isn't that? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, that's cool. So I made this set of watches as like one-off pieces. They were shown in kind of exhibitions and stuff, but they were very much, they were quite crude looking objects, which was a deliberate sort of design choice because I didn't want people to look at them and think, ah, I like how he styled that watch. That looks very elegant. So like, they look, they look more like, sort of, I guess, sort of placeholders or something. They're, they're very um, blocky. Mm. Um, but so, so they were shown in exhibitions and stuff. And I started thinking after that, maybe it'd be nice to actually make some of these as watches. Um, I, as I say, I've been trying to make my practice more sustainable. So one of the things I was thinking was, well, if I could make products, then maybe I could sell them. And it occurred to me that any, like, anytime you go to a town where there's a market on, there's always a stall selling watches, like cheap watches. Mm. And I always thought it's, it's ridiculous because they're selling cheap watches that, designed to look like really expensive watches and it fools no one and it's, it's just a really odd thing like yeah it's, it's kind of dark um but i thought okay there's like this big capacity to manufacture watches what what might be an interesting product is this low cost manufacturing coupled with more sophisticated design so not yeah. make a 20 pound watch that tries to look like it's a rolex make a 20 pound watch that tries to say something interesting or like you know has has some kind of um you know some sophistication but not in the the you know flashy watch and mistakes but so i started off just emailing different watch factories i found through google just saying what's the minimum order mm. like you know what the setup costs i knew quite early on that i wanted to do transparent discs instead of metal hands because i i had some thoughts about how um how i could put remember you will die on the face of the watch so in, in the one-off sort of piece for exhibition, it was an LCD screen. So it showed you 12.06 and then the screen, it was on like a cycle, it would flip and you would read, remember you will die and then it would flip back. But I thought if you could print the word remember and you will die, you could make these two hands like an hour, a minute hand out of the, the letters of the word. So I knew I wanted to print on transparent discs. Um, so I had, yeah, my basic questions were what's the minimum order? Can you print on transparent discs? So I started off emailing, I think, seven factories, of which maybe three got back to me. Mm. The second round of quest, like follow-up questions, 
quite quickly, there was only one factory that was emailing me back. So they kind of selected themselves. Um, and the basic, the, the setup was 500 pieces of the minimum order. I could design my own case, which was another of the questions I had. Um, I could make as many variations within the 500 watches. Like the 500 watches was really 500 cases. Then oh, there were like cool. set, set up fees associated with each design, but there was no, like if I wanted to, I could make 500 one-off watches, but wow. obviously okay. it, it would have been expensive because yeah. you know the setup costs on each. Um, but so I thought my background's fine art, I'll make five 100 piece limited editions. Cause they would, they said, I said, can you engrave like sequential numbers on the back? There's yeah, of course, fine, whatever. Um, so five designs, 100 pieces of each, um, seemed like a sort of manageable mm. you know, like entity. Um, and it was at the time when the US dollar to pound sterling exchange rate was very skewed in the sterling side. So it was $2 was one pound. And that's mm. relevant because so the factory was in China, but all the Chinese factories bill in US dollars. Okay. So it was like, it was a, a, a significant expense for me to do this initial order, but it wasn't so much that you know i'd be destitute if it didn't work out yeah it wasn't it wasn't gonna break you exactly like i mean like it wasn't one that was just like yeah fine think (laughs) think about it but equally it wasn't like okay it's the end of everything if it doesn't work out so five designs 100 pieces of each so one of them was the remember your die watch um there were some other designs in there like there was one called the decider where as the seconds tick around you could see the words yes or no. Yeah, I've seen that one. To, That's one's okay, cool. I watched, I watched to help you make decisions and stuff. Yeah. So I, I released them in June 2007. And once I released them, like I had some small profile from these kind of one-off exhibitions I've been doing. I built up a sort of mailing list of journalists who were sort of in that area. So I, I built a website. I sent an email out to the mailing list such as I had. Um, and yeah, to my somewhat to my surprise, like they sold quite quite well. Mm. And what happened was by I think September, the Remember You Will Die watch had sold out. There were very few of the Decider, and uh, uh, the other three models were less popular, but were doing okay. And um, but I thought, okay, great, the first one sold out, so now people will order some of the others because like two of the models really didn't sell that well, and I've got quite a lot of them, and so. But they didn't. They kept emailing saying, "When are you going to make more? Make more of the Remember You Will Die watches." Yeah. And I thought, because I I thought it's like I make as this. I thought I make the five hundred watches. It will be this kind of art project. It will be this. So that will be it. I, like I had no no sense of that's the first set, and then mm. I do a, a follow up set of watches. I thought that would be a thing, and then I go on and do something else, something else. some com- completely different product mm. that I'd make. A set number of and release it and sell it and you know that that was kind of my model um because i was thinking you know like a fine artist i was thinking okay this could be i do different products from different sort of areas yeah. um but you know people were following up on the remember your die i thought it was a limited edition but then there's nothing to stop me reissuing it like it's it's ridiculous but it's a kind of language thing so it was a limited edition but i'll reissue it and that then it'll be part of the permanent collection yeah like it, it's kind of a you just kind of like strike the number on the back i guess and now it's like a production watch right it, well exactly i mean what i did with the remember your die watch and um so 
the original one just has like a mirror dial because I wanted the wearer reflecting the watch face like it was telling you, you will yeah. die. Um, and it just had, remember you will die as the two hands and nothing else on it. So for the reissue, I printed like hour markers around the edge so you could read it a bit more easily um, and just tidied up a few small mm. details on there. And then, yeah, it, it no longer had the number 27 of 100 piece engraved on the back. Um, and But actually that became like quite a good model. So then the following year I thought, I could do some more. <laughs> so I thought I do another five designs, 100 piece of each. The ones that are popular, I'll reissue into the permanent collection. The ones that aren't, we'll just sell through and like move on. And mm -hmm. essentially that is still the same model that we use now. And, and what's nice about it is it allows us to be really experimental because we've only ever made a hundred watches. So we don't like, like if you had to order 1,500 watches, then you could be a lot more cautious about how the design looks like maybe you do some test marketing or you do some focus group and you show it mm. to people and you get their feedback. And, and I always really wanted to avoid that because I think what, I think our strength as a company and as a brand is that we'll make something that no one else would make, that no one else would consider making. And, and the reason we can do that is we can always say it's 100 pieces. Like if it doesn't sell out, it's fine. Like absolute worst case scenario, we could take those watches apart remake them as a different model in the future like it's been a long time since we had to do that but we have had to do that on occasion mm -hmm. um and and yeah and i think that's what people respond to because then like the watches we make are not are not trying to be a sort of general watch for a large swathe of the population they're trying to be like that watch that they really one person sees it and it's perfect for them and they've never felt that kind of emotional response to you know a watch before because they've never seen a watch that looks like that because all mm. the other watches look, you know. They I, follow I, like I, a design I, language, right? Exactly, they, they look kind of safer. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't realize about the watch industry until I started making watches. But the watch industry is ultra conservative. Like, so, like I have an enormous respect for the Rolexes, the Amigas, the like big brands of this world. I have so little respect for all the brands that sit below them who are content to make things that look a bit like a Rolex. Yeah. And, and so many brands are just happy to do that. And that's their aim. And it's just like, Rolex do that pretty well themselves. Like, why don't yeah. you, why don't you try to find your own sort of design space or, or language or, yeah. I mean, there's, there's other things like, so I said originally, I thought, okay, I'll do all these different products and stuff. One of the things that's nice about watches is they're really small. so you don't need like a warehouse to store them. So the 500 watches that turned up, I saw in my flat and you mm. know I could package them up and then I could take them to the post office and they're actually fairly inexpensive to send more or less anywhere in the world because they're quite light and quite small. And you know, the, the, there's all these sort of practical things about watches that absolutely hadn't occurred to me, but, but make them quite a nice product. You know, they're, they're a nice product to spend some time and some effort to put some work into because then they're they're an object that you look at really closely that people pay attention to the details on mm. um, and and that absolutely isn't the case in you know in, in a lot of products yeah definitely i suppose quite a lot of especially in like the whole like art toy market as well like quite often they'll get made to a 
lower standard because they're just kind of onto the next thing and onto the next thing. Whereas with a watch, somebody's just gonna like what well, I imagine most people are gonna like live with that watch for a, at least a year, probably way way mm. further. So it's quite a lot of responsibility, I imagine, designing watches. Like, yeah, I like what I found really stressful early on was people saying. I'm buying this as a wedding gift for my husband or like I'm buying this as like a, a 21st birthday present or something. Mm. I felt like the the sort of emotional weight, the responsibility of those things, you're like, God, I hope they like it. Like, you know, I feel awful if they did. Like, I, I, to be honest, at a certain stage, I was, you know, we had enough sales that I could employ people to deal with the, the very direct customer emails. And I think psychologically it's better for me because... I used to find it quite stressful and I, cause Imagine. I used to, I used to, you know, I used to look at every single email we received, even if I didn't reply to all of them up until really quite recently. And, um, but I feel happier now, like not because I think also you, like it's a truism that if you have a nice experience with a company, it'd be rare for you to send an email. So generally the people you hear from are people yeah. who have a problem with the product. So, you start getting to this mindset of like, ah, like people are really frustrated with us. And so, and, and it's really not representative of the overall. It's like this tiny proportion of the overall watches that we make and sell. But, you know, you can, you start to, so your perception starts to shift and you start thinking that's everyone. Like, <laughs> that negativity is so hard to shift away from as well, yeah. especially when it's something you've, like anything creative really that you've kind of put out like a hundred people could tell you oh this is amazing and I love it and then like one person's like oh this is awful for x y reasons and that's the, that's the thing you remember right that's yeah, the thing you think about definitely it's, it's very much like a human thing isn't it you mm. you just think that one person's right like those other hundred people are idiots. Like, the way <laughs> yeah. they know. that one person oh I mean yeah yeah it's a I mean it's a strange thing and yeah yeah there are always people who are not gonna be happy and I guess actually I mean, it feeds into, so I started as a one-man band. I sent all the orders myself, and then I employed someone else who worked part-time to start sending, and gradually we've grown, and now we're 19 people, like, mm -hmm. in the, the company. So we're still tiny, but I think one of the things that I felt was really important and that we have real continuity in is we'd really go out of our way for customer service, like, because, because like, for exactly the reasons I said, I feel awful if someone has bad experience with our product. And I, I think a lot of people contact us, like we play a bit of a game where we try to look bigger than we are because I think people's perception is that, you know, we want we want to believe in you as a brand player. So we want to believe yeah, this stability. And, and of course we are a very stable company. We're not, <laughs> we're not fly by night and stuff. Um, but so we play this game where we look bigger than we are, perhaps. And so I think people approach us thinking, I'm going to have a really hard time, like, getting my issue resolved. So I'll go in, like, nuclear, and then, <laughs> you know, I'll make sure they hear me and stuff. And so those people, like, we, we talk about, you know, we neutralise people by understanding and being sympathetic and resolving the problem. And we do really try to pay attention to, to the customer service side. I'm really conscious one of... So we, we stopped wholesaling our watches uh, this time last year, well, like January last year. But before that, we wholesaled them. So we sold to other retailers and stuff. And I know from 
some of the customers would get so frustrated with the retailers they were dealing with where they had a problem with one of our watches and the retailers being really difficult I know so how cool. bad some some customer service is and it reflects yeah. badly on us and like I'm, I'm much happier now that we have total control of that and you know we go out of our way to resolve any issues like any problem people have like we do so we we will repair any watch we've ever made and okay if it's more than a few years old we might make a charge for the parts but we make such a tiny charge in the overall scheme of things because always we think well it's better if the watch is out there being worn and enjoyed rather than someone's got a watch and yeah in a drawer whatever, exactly whatever component has failed or they've broken the glass like maybe they've, they've had an accident with it and stuff mm. you know for us to be like yeah we can replace the glass but it costs you 70 pounds or something it would be uh, obnoxious and absurd so you know we replace glasses i think all the glasses are 10 pounds to get wow. if it's you know it you know we really try to to make it worth people's while to and and then i think you win those people over who have had a bad experience and they become kind of ambassadors for you and they tell other people and you know some virtuous um cycle it feels like in a way we we had a bit of an experience when we kind of reached out to to Miss Jones as a company because we probably were in a similar boat where I mean we've spoken to other brands before and you can always tell when you're <laughs> when it's like a person that's actually read what you've said is coming back to you as opposed to just somebody being like yeah whatever we'll listen to it or do, do, do you know what I mean like mm. that was one thing that really stood out was just how personable it was and how even just the speed of everything as well like it was only last week I think that we started even having a dialogue with the company so yeah it does I mean, that, that really stand that, out. I never understand as well like just going back to the repairs like I mean, we our aim is to turn any repair around within one week from when we get it to getting it back to the customer, or getting it shipped back to the customer. Mm. We don't always hit that, but like two weeks would be exceptional. But you look at big brands uh, and I don't know, I just don't understand it. Like if you send a watch to some of the big Swiss brands, you're looking at six months yeah. before you get, and it's like, what are they doing with it? Like, how is that possible? It doesn't make any sense to me. To me, that's just really bad customer service because that's like, Okay, I get it. You're a big brand, so there's many more watches that come back for you for repair. But that means you employ more people in your your watch repair section, like because you're a big brand and you got a lot. Of, like, it, mm. I I don't get it. Like, I I maybe I'm not a sophisticated enough businessman to understand why a six month waiting time. Because I just think that stuff gets around, and then people are like, don't want to invest in this brand. It, it makes kind yeah. of negative connotation with it, like. You hear that about a brand and then you've got this slight negative thing and you might i mean we were talking about stanley and his negative association with greyhound <laughs> like yeah. like sometimes i think you you can get that like he he doesn't remember the specific incident but he knows there's, there's something and i think it's quite difficult to shake that once you've once people have heard that oh, it takes six months to get it back and they're really i don't know the the swiss part of the watch industry seems to me a, a, I'm trying to think of polite ways to say. Like, I think it's one of those things where, like, the larger a company is, like, generally the slower it is to do anything, right? And the, likewise, the smaller a company is, it's nimble and it can adapt and kind of keep up with what people expect of a market now, where it kind of feels like the Swiss, the way they operate hasn't really changed 
in like a hundred years. Mm. <laughs> like it, it very yeah, yeah. much feels like that, right? I th- and yeah, and maybe that is that is what it is. They're stuck in a kind of late twentieth century mindset, and mm. that's not the world that they live in anymore. I mean, I like I know a lot of people think very negatively about Swiss brands wanting to take sort of ownership of the the repair, like the supply of spare parts for their watches and stuff. I know it's very controversial in the world of independent watch repairers and stuff. Mm. But I kind of, and, and I know for like selling through authorized retailers, like the Swiss brand, what they're going towards is having own brand boutiques and not really wholesaling it. And I know cons- from the consumer side, people hate that. But from the company side, I totally get it. Like I totally get that why if you're the big Swiss brand, you would restrict supply of your parts to, repairers because you'd be like well send it back to us and we'll make sure it's right if we send the yeah. parts to someone and they do a bad job that reflects really badly on us and and simply yeah. like wholesaling like i get it you want people to come in and and really make that emotional link to your brand i just so i think i get some of it right but then the six month wait time for repair is like just insane just no it. totally totally i think that we kind of picked up on one of the things i wanted to ask about a bit earlier mm-hmm. on there where when you were talking about the um uh, remember you will die watch and and having it printed on discs i'd say that was like one when i think of mr jones watches that's like one of the things i think of is having these kind of overlapping discs that are printed mm-hmm. what, what was like the inspiration behind that was that because it sounds like it was something you were very much like from day one you knew you wanted to do it like where where did that kind of come from so i before i started so before i designed that one-off series of watches before i had anything to do with watches I found a watch called the Chromacron, which was designed by a Swiss designer called, or German, I think, Tian Harlan. Um, the Chromacron's, do you, like, do you know it? No, I haven't heard okay. of that. I'm so going to have the, to look that the, up. The Chromacron has got this sort of kaleidoscope. It looks like um, a sort of color wheel. Okay. It's got a kaleidoscope of colors, and each sort of wedge of the color wheel is one hour. So each hour is different color. And then you have this sort of Pac-Man shaped disc on top of it with like a V-shaped cutout. So when it's exactly the hour, the mouth Uh, of the Pac-Man is like full of the color. And when it's half past, it's like bisected by the two colors. And it's a really interesting watch to wear because so Tian Holland had this sort of philosophy behind it that he said, we're slaves to this kind of mechanical yeah, sort of numerical time system that's really like not actually mapped to the rhythms of biology or humanity you know like as mm. animals we don't live to the second we live to this rhythm of the day and the passage of the sun and stuff so he was saying it was a way to sort of reduce that anxiety around the 1257 like precision and make it more like it's nearly one o'clock but in a very mm. nice like very nice sort of visual sort of sympathetic kind of way um, mm. and he has he has this whole philosophy be- behind what what the 12 colors that he picked means and things like that so it, it's interesting and I guess you know with hindsight looking back on it I think it was my way into watches because I thought before then I think you know watches seem such a um the word such a ubiquitous like generic object that mm. the idea that someone designed it is kind of alien because you think okay someone designed that particular configuration but basically the watch is like a fixed thing like, like very I much think, like established kind of thing yeah exactly yeah. 
I, well, I th and I think what's interesting, so Tian Harlan looked at it and went, you don't have to have two hands and you don't have to have like numbers like Arabic numerals for like, you just have colors and, you know, we'll make it a lot, a lot softer and a lot. And, and I guess also now, so I wasn't the kid growing up fascinated with watches. Now I'm really interested in watches. Like, it, you know, I, I think genuinely it's an interesting field, the field of horology. And, you know, I know quite a chunk about the history of horology mm. and, and watches and stuff. And so knowing that the shorthand meaning an hour and the longhand meaning a minute is just a, a design. Like it's a design that evolved at a certain point. Like the first clocks were single-handed because there wasn't the precision to add a minute hand. It wouldn't have been meaningful. And then as the mechanism gets more precise, you can add a minute hand. And then even you can get to a second hand because you've got that level of precision. So it like it, it's it's quite difficult to view the watch and and sort of see it in those fundamental terms and go, okay, the shorthand meaning the hour and the longhand meaning the minutes. It's just a thing. It's just a design. It's like a design of you know a plurality of of different designs that could be could be done. That's really interesting. Yeah, the, like one of slightly related. There's this um, Norwegian product designer called Iran who was, so he went, I think he was Norwegian anyway, but he he was one of the sort of early to mid 20th century, like first industrial designers, first, you know, amongst the first people to call themselves an industrial designer. And the early industrial designers, he, he designed everything. He designed like a cruise ship, he designed cutlery. He designed like absolutely everything. Wow. He turned his hand to. But what's really nice about him is he, so he worked for Philips for a while, which is how I came across him. I worked for Philips for a short time. Like not that we overlap, like he died many years ago, but one, at one time when I was at Philips, they sold off a lot of old books from their library, their library and the site that I worked. So I bought all these books on sort of history of Philips design. They were, they were kind of vanity published books, but so I'd never heard of him before, but I, I became you know fascinated because I got this monograph on him. But one of the things that he did was, which was really interesting was he would buy a car and then he would take it to his coach builder in Italy and he would get them to like build him a new bodywork for it, like okay. how he wanted it. And he designed some beautiful cars as like one-off pieces. And I guess what, I, like that to me was a revelation because he could kind of look at the car and go, yeah, I like it, but this is just a starting point, this thing that I've bought. What I'm going to do is I'm going to redesign it and I get someone to like build that up and then I'll drive it around it with the car that I want. Like it's incredible sort of, I mean, obviously he had the money to do that. Yeah. And the, you know, he had the connections. Like, I don't know, who's the coach builder you call up in Italy where you're like, <laughs> I've I've bought this, I don't know what he, he would start with kind of American sort of those cars with the big fenders on the back, but then he would completely redesign it and he'd lower the suspension, he'd change it. Just like that sounds mind awesome. blown. Like, but but you know, interesting that he could see that as yeah, that thing that I bought is like a starting point and I'm going to make it the way I want it. You know, I, I think that's a freedom to to manipulate. I guess it's kind of hacking, really. He could see a car and go, yeah, I like it, but I'm going to hack this and like I'm going to mm. make it work for me better. I guess digital technology has allowed a lot more people to do that. Like to do that with physical objects is quite difficult, but to do it digitally is is kind of you know, more straightforward or, or I guess lower cost, maybe. Yeah, well, so it's... I think that's one thing that you come across very quickly when you start getting into watches is like the 
endless and vast scene of like watch modding and stuff mm. that is like I think that's like you say it's easy to do something digitally but there is something different and just inherently I would say more appealing about physically altering something and and have knowing it's like the only one like that or something like that I, I genuinely like I'm I am fascinated with the kind of watch modding community I like I don't love the I really want like basically they're like I want a mid-50s Rolex I'm gonna buy an imitation one and then I'm gonna like age the case and age the dial I mean there's yeah. there's some um ingenuity that goes into the <laughs> processes and like it, it's fascinating to see but um I, I guess I'm kind of more interested in some of the I've seen some really interesting off-the-wall designs for smartwatches where, you know, because it's digital, it's really easy to totally change the time representation. And I think that's a really, you know, fascinating area. But it somehow it doesn't have the same value as the physical object. Like it's it's nice and I'm kind of really intrigued to see it, but I never feel the desire to like own it or to handle it or to like buy a smartwatch and download it onto it. Like, it it seems quite um, I don't know cheap somehow or yeah, disposable I guess yeah well it's just like the same way of like I guess like comparing like digital art to an original piece right there is just I think we're very we're like a tactile creature so we can appreciate mm. something that's there way more than a representation of something on on a screen or something like that. So you're not into the NFTs then? <laughs> I was, as I was saying that, I was thinking yeah. about that. Yeah, I haven't, but, quite, haven't quite dipped my toe into the NFT world yet. But I think ultimately that's why I think the whole NFT world is a bit of a, it's like a Ponzi scheme, really. It's like you need more people to come in at ground level to keep the market buoyant and stuff. I think you're right. Like, we're, I mean, we're not tactile creatures on everything. Like, I think some things you can maybe just possessed digitally but I think on the whole we are like we want mm. the object or, or the real value is in the actual object the idea of owning an nft of whatever to do with the watch world or you know it's like it's yeah, yeah. I think yeah. there's already um because there's that uh board board ape I think is like the big one right and there's already one where it's like just pictures of different watches like they look like a royal oak or something but it's like an nft version and yeah, awesome. I don't know. Yeah, I just for the, I don't know. I sound a billionaire <laughs> with too much time on their hands. Yeah, that's it. I don't know. I, I mean, hopefully they do something. I think it is interesting, and hopefully something interesting comes out of it. But I haven't seen anything that's kind of captured me. I guess yet. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Like it's interesting as a sort of cultural phenomena. Mm. Right, in terms of like wanting to get involved myself, because like, there were you know I've had conversations with people where they're like why don't you do NFT version of your watches? Like, I'm like, because no one I know would ever want to buy one. And like, I, I just don't see the value in it. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I guess in the same way that, oh, actually we did dip our toe into doing some smartwatch versions of our watches, which was kind of interesting because we could do some animations and stuff that wouldn't be technically possible with the real watch. But like I say, they seem so disposable and like yeah you know like you can I think so we did it in partnership with um Facer who are one of the big watch face download sites for smart watches 
um, and they sold them and we got like a percentage and it was an inexpensive thing if people wanted to buy one but it just seemed so like it's inexpensive it's disposable it it lacks the quality of the actual object and I guess yeah. it, it lacks the kind of the ingenuity of I guess our, what we relish as a challenge is to map a design to the watch face and you know make it work within all the constraints that we have to to work with yeah I suppose it's like um I know with the a watch that you've got on the website the minute the uh, promise of happiness one where the mm -hmm. the stripes are in like the tiger's body and stuff like that like doing that digitally obviously would be so much easier because you would just animate it but again you're losing I don't know it's like for me like I would say wristwatches are like the closest you can get to magic <laughs> in in the world like in terms of like looking at it and it just kind of works especially like automatic and stuff like they just go right you don't really need mm. to do that much but then a digital version of that quite quickly becomes quite sterile I think yeah. that kind of MacGyver aspect of we've created this thing that just works itself and yeah I think it kind of rubs shoulders with that school of thought for me and, and I guess is the reason why mechanical watches are still around now when by any objective standard like a quartz like a digital watch makes more sense it's cheaper it's more precise but it lacks that uh, sort of emotional resonance like it doesn't have the little beating heartbeat inside it and stuff and I know we we make quartz watches and we make mechanical watches and like I except some people are happy with the the quartz thing personally I like the mechanical watch I like the I like the sort of link to the the history of watches that 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 offers yeah absolutely I think that's because I'm, I'm wearing the um the noirge today that's, that's all, the one yeah. I'm yeah it's the one I'm reviewing and I, this one's quartz but exactly. I think because you've, it goes back to what you were talking about with like, it doesn't have like a, a it, obviously it has a strict time, but mm -hmm. I now I've got used to wearing it and reading the time from it. It is a way more like casual <laughs> way of like seeing the time really. And I've, I've kind of noticed myself look forward to like six, six or seven o'clock when the sun changes to the moon and stuff like that. Yeah, so well, it's I, I, got that soul, but obviously still a, a quartz movement, right? I, I mean, I, I assume you were aware of the Sun and Moon watches, like the pocket watches that were the precedent that it was based on. Like, yeah, yeah. Because that, that was really interesting to me when I saw that for the first time, because I thought exactly like, I, th I think that was what crystallized for me, the idea that shorthand means the hour, longhand means the minute. You, you see, it is just convention, because you're like, mm. ah, there was this other version where it was like, the sun or the moon was the hour hand and then the minute hand was just like a pointer and you know it was just a different convention it didn't persist but it's got really nice poetry to it and mm. and that mapping of what the hours relate to okay the passage of the sun and moon okay it doesn't precisely work because there's only there's probably one day of the year where the sun rises <laughs> yeah, at 6 a.m and sets at 6 p.m but as a sort of schematic it works for us you know it's nice mm. it's kind of like rom like a romantic view of of time isn't it really mm. it's, it's, it's cool yeah. i think kind of watches I th for me anyway that's what wearing a watch is like chasing because the bottom line is you can just check your phone see what the time is but mm -hmm. you're i don't know i think again it goes back to that chat we were having earlier about it being an inherently like personal object that kind of is an extension of yourself really um mm -hmm. 
and especially with what you're doing with very much like coming at it from like an art perspective and wanting to kind of send a message almost with, with some of the designs that you're going for yeah it's it's cool and it is a shame like you say that so many companies are just happy to just be like well, we're just going to make a Submariner but we'll scrub off Rolex and put our own name on it kind yeah. of thing yeah I mean I think I think for a lot of people they we have a, a small shop in the Oxo Tower and that was really interesting for me because I used to work from there every day so I'd speak to customers all the time and a lot of people would come in and be like I don't wear a watch I just check my phone for the time and then they kind of go that's weird how do you sell time on that that's really interesting. And then they buy a watch. And yeah. Because they, they kind of understood that, okay, the checking the time on your phone is like a really functional thing. And then there could be like a different relationship you have to time that is just a bit more fun and playful and a bit more whimsical. And and you you have that thing of people going, how do you tell the time on that watch? Like, how does that work? Like, I've never seen a watch that looks like that. What's, how do you read it? You know, and that, that's really nice. You know, that's, I think that's one of the things you know it's it's nice it's one of the things we aim for as a brand you know to have that moment of someone going i took the time on that that's i don't get it like you know you kind of and, quickly and, um get a relationship with the watch as well that's something i've found with this one anyway it's like because maybe it took me a few days to get used to it it kind of feels like mm -hmm. it's my like little secret with the watch now it's like i know how you work but somebody <laughs> <laughs> just getting this off the street would maybe struggle initially yeah i mean what becomes harder is actually I noticed this with the Chromacron watch like you could learn to read it like quite precisely but you couldn't necessarily verbalize that so <laughs> someone would say what time is it and you'd look at your watch and you you could you weren't you weren't computing it as like it's 345 you would just like oh it's that shape or the hands in roughly that you know it was sort of a different thing and then it, you had to engage the brain a bit to like unpick that back into numbers to tell someone else so you yeah. look like a bit of an idiot you, actually you look like you couldn't read your watch you look like you can <laughs> I don't know hang on let me get my chart out I need to exactly, exactly yeah that's cool there was um again you mentioned earlier about like the a lot of your watches are quite often uh, designed in collaboration with like an artist and a designer and something I've noticed is more often than not it is like a somebody from the art world as opposed to the watch world was that like a, a very conscious decision that you wanted just again a bit of difference really in what you were making I mean I okay I, I guess on some level yes on another level I don't know anyone in the watch world but I know loads of like illustrators and designers and yeah. and like I guess I can relate to them and I can talk to them and I'm not sure I would know how to talk to someone who was in the watch or you know who had designed a watch before like no mm. one we've ever worked with has ever designed a watch before I'm pretty certain on that's that. really cool like yeah I don't think and and that's nice for them as well because they're like oh, interesting I never something completely different amazing you know and and that's kind of rare if you're a like an illustrator or a designer and stuff like and and your world is like applying your designs to different objects like a watch, I guess the watch is nice because it has an animation to it as well. It has like things move on there. So it's mm. not a static object. So it's not as simple as I do a drawing, you print it. Like, you know, it, it needs to have consideration to that sort of third dimension, the fourth dimension, isn't it? The 
the t- motion over time. Mm. That's really good. Yeah, like, oh, sorry, you go, you go. No, no, I was just going to say, like, there are sort of interesting sort of staging posts in the history of us as a company. Like, the first part is when I first started it, I thought, Mr. Jones watches, that means I design all the watches, and that's a really important part of it. And like, I design everything because, you know, I was full of like, this is my world. Like, this is, this is what I do. It's, e- it's ego. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was full of ego for it. Like, um, and after about four years of doing the like five watches a year, I, I was flagging. <laughs> and, and, and the watches that I tend, that I designed were quite text based because that was sort of my interest in this sort of quite straight message, like, remember, you will die. Like, that was kind of my thing. Mm. I mean, I did do the Sun and Moon watch, the first one that New Age was based on, and, like, I did try some other stuff, but I was quite text-orientated. So after five years, I did a set of watches where I collaborated with a different person who had an interesting relationship to time, so still, I couldn't let go of it. It was still like me, but with someone else. And um, so there was like a musician, there was a sportsman, um, there were like, a, and a comedian, and you know, different people who have very like fine-grained association with time. I thought like the comedian, the association with timing, it's it's really interesting how their, you know, their skill and craft in t- delivering a joke really depends on a really fine-grained understanding of how to pace things. Um, so the watch that I designed with a comedian was called The Last Laugh, which is one we still make now. And that's mm. the one where the you have a skull and the upper row of teeth show the hours and the lower row of teeth show the minutes. And that for us was like a shift because that was the first watch we did where it was kind of an image and the time telling was integrated within it. Like this is, this is also retrospectively, I can look back and go, ah, okay, this, like it takes a while to understand what it is that you're doing. Because yeah. now, now one of the things that we really try to do with all of the watches is to make an image with the time-telling aspect integrated into it. So like you, like the skull as a motif on a watch, super common. Like you see loads of companies that will print like a skull on the dial, but then they'll stick like the short hand and the long hand and yeah. like conventional hands on it. And so it's it just seemed really clumsy to me because it was like, You've it's just this... like putting a clock on a piece of art, basically, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. It was just like you haven't really worked with it much. You've just gone, ah, skull, watch, join, like, you know, <laughs> exactly. So, so, but I, and I think, so my set of watches are very text based. Now, I think my role, and like, it's not only me, I said there's 19 of us in the company. We've review collectively all of the designs and discuss them and feed stuff back to the artist but I think our role is really as editing those designs that come in and working out ways to adapt it for display on a watch um, and you know I Mr. Jones watch is started in 2007 so it's like a 15 year arc to get here and I'm, I'm quite happy with that now like I think at a certain point actually my, my girlfriend said like when I so I did the first set of collaborations so I couldn't quite let go of it but then I asked a friend to design some watches and that was kind of and she she was one who kind of observed she said 
is still a Mr. Jones watch if someone else designed it. And I was like, well, yeah, like we'll like our approach to it is the kind of thing. And I think actually, you know, that becoming comfortable with that is has been like an important sort of thing for me to to get used to. And yeah. I suppose yeah. that if you if you weren't doing that, you wouldn't have such like a a massive variety of of what you're producing, right? There's there's only so many things that one person can come up with and design, especially when you're confining that to such a small surface on a wristwatch. So exactly. having yeah, yeah. the doors open has meant that you've been able to do such different things. Definitely, and like we have been really lucky. Like, I, well, I think there's two things. There's like in the in the world of graphic designers, there's a, um, a saying like good clients get good work. Like we're, we're really good clients for the people we work with because our aim is always to make the best possible expression of their artwork or the best possible sort of adaptation of their artwork to the watch. Like we're the experts in the putting it on the watch, but we're working with them because we like them like we've seen something in their work that we think is really interesting so you know we kind of we let them get on with that and i'm trying to think if there are exceptions to this but almost always we would say to whoever we were working with like we're not going to set a narrative framework for it like you, your design has to have a narrative to it you can't just go i want a skull and two hands like <laughs> and we're not doing it like you can yeah. say that and we'll go eh, you want to work with another company it's got to have like a a reason for it being there um, and a reason for like a, a story behind it um and it's got to integrate the time telling function within the overall like image or scene or you know whatever mm. however that design actually is so yeah it, and uh, I, I, I guess like it, it's taken us a while to understand that that is what we do which sounds ridiculous like you know it's obvious but but with yeah. it's only with hindsight and I mean I would say it's only probably maybe three years ago that I could have articulated that for the first time I think before that I would have said what we're interested in is like unconventional ways of showing the time which was true absolutely but that idea of integrating the time telling function within the image and making this kind of you know unified whole mm. of the the watch the animation the moving the time you know um yeah that's it's interesting what you said there as well about the um like good clients get, get good designs so i think that's something that goes through like that's something i've heard from tattoo artists before is like <laughs> if they if they have a bad client they're, they're not going to be like they don't have the ability to do their best work because they almost are mm. having to compromise it along the way and it was one thing i wanted to ask about because i know with the the last laugh tattoo watch um mm -hmm. and as well i think one of the en enamel i think have you only done one enamel dial and the graffiti one exactly we we did two the sort of kaboom like explosion one and the graffiti one mm. so like with the no, it feels like I've seen like a theme of like kind of counterculture or like subculture kind of emanating into the designs. Again, is that something that was like a conscious thing or is that just a byproduct of collaborating with with people in the art space? I mean, I, I guess we we go looking for that probably like we're, we're quite pop culture, you know, we like mm. 
ephemera and that. I guess there's something nice about the ephemeral, but then handled in a really sympathetic way and and made, you know, like we put the gilding on the, the watch that you're wearing, like new eyes, like we do a lot of watches with precious metal foil gilding. So applying these kind of high art processes to low art designs mm. is is like a part of it. But I would say, yeah, fundamentally we we want something fun and playful and you know I guess, I guess of the moment more than mm. more than like specifically looking for kind of ephemeral stuff. Okay. Or, That's know, really interesting. or, or kind of popular <laughs> have you have you got any any plans to do more of those enamel dials or is that like you did it and because I know it's super difficult right doing enamel working on a on such a small surface I mean so the enamel dial watches were so we wanted to do some close on a enamel dial watches because I'd read about them like all these different Swiss brands that did them in the yeah. 50s and stuff like really beautiful things mm. um and that was at the moment where so I said there were some shifts in us as a company. Like one of them was when I stopped designing all the watches. Another was when we started producing in the UK. So the first five years or so, all the designs would be originated digitally here and then we'd send to the factory in China. They'd send back a sample. We'd make a few tweaks to it. They'd do the production. At the beginning, that the timeline of, we sent the design till we get a sample was 10 weeks. and. Mm. By after five years, just because the factories got busy or whatever, I don't know, like they, we were working with different factories during this time. Um, that mush like grew to like six months. So wow. we do design, we wait six months, get a sample. We spend half an hour making a few changes, like, eh, does that work a bit larger or whatever? And we send it off and then we wait six months to get the watches back. And it was like too long. So I, and I visited the factories for the first time in 2011. And I saw like the desktop pad printing machines that they were using for printing the dials. And I thought it looked cool. I thought it looked really nice. And, and also it looked like, like I think before that I'd not given much thought to how the components were printed. I just, I guess probably if you'd asked me, I'd say that I think they're silk screen printed maybe, or I don't know, I, I, it really didn't engage me. But, um, but seeing the pad printer and seeing the kind of the precision of it in the small scale and you've got the ink and stuff like it was quite like being at art college it's like you know nice great we get to like mix up the colors and stuff so i thought okay we'll start sampling the watches in the uk we'll do that first round and then we'll send off the design once we're super confident and we'll just do straight into the production so we cut out six months of that 12 month cycle at a stroke but what we found out quite quickly was if you're printing one watch you might as well print a small run of them. So then we started doing these sort of micro editions, like 20 pieces, 25 pieces of a design. If it was popular, we'd reissue da, da, da. So we'd started doing some production in the UK. Like there was an odd moment as well where some of the watches were produced in the UK, some were still produced in China. And that was really confusing for the customers because they'd say, yeah. this one produced in China and this one produced in the UK. Like, I, why? Why aren't they all what's I don't get yeah. it. Yeah. Like it was it was just a bit weird. Um, but so we'd start producing here. I'd start to employ people to assemble the watches because there's no watch industry in the UK. The people I was employing were um bench working jewelers. So there were people who used to stone setting small, mm. like hand work on a at jewelry bench. Like I, I said bench working jewelers to differentiate from 
there are a lot of jewelers who will just design on screen and send it out and like you know they're not um making stuff by hand yeah but so elena um who is still works for me as the production manager now she was really interested in enameling and she was doing watch assembly i was talking to her about the close nade dials we thought why don't we try it like <laughs> let's give it a go yeah. <laughs> how hard can um, it be <laughs> Famous last words so, that one, right? Well, it, it was a bit, but, but then it was like a nice challenge because it was like, so we were printing dials. It was like mm. another way to make a dial. And it, it had a sort of logic to me because, you know, like it, it was just a different way to get an image on there. It was nice because of the kind of the history and the associations and stuff. So Elena went on a course in like a, a basic course in enameling. And then mm. we bought an enameling kiln for work. and all of the Crescent dials are her work and she would she spent quite some months like not working every day week yeah. after week like because she still had to she still had to do her sort of regular assembly of watches mm. and stuff but there was enough time within her working week to do some you know to dedicate some time to that um and yeah she so we made two watches the two watches were there's a monochrome one that was like a comic book explosion and there was a quite an early piece of american graffiti that yeah. we adapted for it and, and both of them were quite conscious decisions to make very ephemeral designs as close and they are so they persist they would last forever you know they're mm. they're kind of permanent because they're fused in glass and stuff um but so those two designs that we released and we made I, I think we only made one of each. Wow. We might have made two of one of them. But like the one was the end of a long line of rejects because that, that was kind of the nature of it. So Elena remade the comic book explosion dial probably four or five times. And wow. each one was at least a day's work because all of the bits of wire had to be shaped by hand. It wasn't like if at the end of it, it hadn't gone right you could take it back a step and start it it was gone like yeah that's that it. just done you know? isn't it yeah yeah um so she got really good like she was essentially doing the same dial over and over again until she got it right um which she enjoyed doing like, it was, <laughs> and she did a really nice she did a really nice job on it and um yeah i now elena has different responsibilities because she she's a production manager so she is in charge of overseeing all of the printing and all of the assembly um, because she's been with me for five, six years, maybe now. Um, I'm sure she would love to make some enamel tiles, but I'm not sure that there's really the time in her working week to. That's fair enough. Them. Yeah, no. Well, if it if it does happen, you've you've got one ordered here, so I'm I'm going to be first in line for one of them. I just think the especially the, I think the graffiti one, because of that, like juxtaposition between like the subject and the the medium is so interesting and especially mm. like with something like graffiti that quite often is seen as a not very like a, like city councils I imagine on on the fondest of graffiti it's so nice to have it in such a classical medium I don't know there was just mm. something about that that really that really got me so yeah I mean, so, yeah to be fair, the graffiti one came about because I bought this very thick book called The History of American Graffiti, which is fascinating. And it's fascinating to see um, 
so the first tagger, and I, I'm not a huge fan of tagging generally, but it's interesting as a sort of cultural phenomenon, is a guy called Taki, who used to be a, so he worked in New York, he was like a, um, a sort of courier. So he would go around to all different parts of the city and he'd be like hanging around waiting outside offices. So he used to write his name everywhere, just because he was bored and stuff. And then other people would start to see it. And, you know, I think he was doing it to kind of mark where he'd been. So maybe when he walked by, he was like, ah, I was here before. But, you know, it was like his way of sort of marking the city. But then other people would kind of copy him and then like tagging became a thing and like trying to get your tag in all how many boroughs there are in New York became a thing and then it became sort of more artistic and essentially like all of the graffiti that came out of New York was tagging basically it was writing your name but rather than just writing your name you know it became more floral in style and then it became more decorative and like colorful and then you know on the side of tube trains and, and stuff but yeah really fascinating you know to sort of to, to kind of read it through and so I, I happened to be reading that at that time we're working on it I thought it maps really nicely also because the comic book one was monochrome and we wanted to have one that showcased a bit more kind of color and stuff mm, no that, that that makes sense there's one of oh I, sorry I, no I was just gonna say I guess at that time as well a bit like I was saying about the indefatigable sphinx our core price point is so much lower than that that we're really unsure about going into that space I guess also if I'm honest like now Anodain exists and I feel like they yeah. do a really beautiful job with enamel dials and I feel like a we would look a bit like we were like yeah we've seen what Anodain do and we <laughs> we're gonna do go with that. <laughs> yeah. and, but, but B I'm I, like I think it would take us an enormous amount of time and effort to get close to their quality and I think you know in, in the same way they're like Rolex are very good at making Rolex. We'd never try to make something that looked like that. Yeah, Probably that makes sense. And, and like, are very good at. Yeah, it's kind of like giving them like the the respect and the props they deserve, right? You're never going to do like one of their Fume style, <laughs> like enamel exactly, dials. Yeah, exactly. I'm, and I think they're beautiful. They, I really like. Mm. You know, I really like the they're a British watch brand, like us, a young British watch brand like us. But they've come along and they really they actually make some part of it themselves I guess is is really the the bit that I respect and I kind of wish there were more like you know I'm not I, that sounds like I'm dissing the people who don't make their own stuff but I guess it, it's one of the, it's one of the things that I like like I like yeah. the kind of craft aspect to it and I like the sort of physicality of it and you know the the printing and the that, that kind of side of it and like the, the process I, of it right yeah exactly yeah that's cool and every time I've kind of gone on the Miss Jones website something that always sticks out to me is that little tab for the the vintage watches is that Mm. something you've always done alongside Mr Jones or is that like very much a passion project or how does that like interact with the brand would you say it's an interesting one like so I told you I was never fascinated with watches growing up I became more interested in 2011 (laughs) In 2011, I started going to evening classes in like mechanical watch repair. Um, so it was run at the Epping Forest Horological Centre, mm. which is not the easiest place to get to. So it's quite a amount of dedication to get there. But when I was making the one-off pieces for exhibition, I was doing my own electronics. I was designing circuit boards. I was soldering them. I was like debugging. When I started doing mechanical watch repair, 
and and I'd stopped doing all of that because I, now I was like designing watches. When I started doing mechanical watch repair, it was exactly the same sort of bits of the brain and, and hand skills and stuff. And so I naturally could kind of gravitate towards it because I quite like that focus and concentration and what both mechanical watches and electronic circuits have in common is that they're the worker they don't. <laughs> mechanical watch works or it runs like shit and you know yeah. it's not properly serviced. Similarly, like a circuit board, it either works or there's something fundamentally wrong. So that sort of concentration of working on something, problem solving, like debugging, which you do in mechanical watches as well. You know, I, I really liked that sort of concentration. I kind of missed it. So I started doing that in 2011. And then, you know, actually at the start, I tried to service one watch every week which okay. is actually, actually fairly unambitious as like a, a schedule for learning watch repair. But you do that for two years, you've got 104 watches. Wow. And really the, the vintage part of the website started off because like, okay, I mean, I, I probably the 104 watches, like, I mean, I don't think I ever quite got to 104 watches because probably I wasn't that disciplined but you know there's there's only so many times that you can work on a really low cost watch and you start thinking it's quite an investment of time and energy mm. maybe I'll get like a slightly nice and then you end up with like 20 30 quite nice watches like I'm not talking worth thousands of pounds I'm talking sort of a, a mid-century 20th century long jeans or something like that nice mm. movement nicely made but it's worth a few hundred pounds but yeah. so I was ending up with like a lot of watches at this sort of price point. And I thought I sold a bunch of them through eBay and stuff. But then I thought I'm paying fees to eBay. Why? Like yeah. they could exist. I've got alongside. my own platform already. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I was a bit self-conscious about it at the start because I thought it doesn't really map to what we do. Mm. Um, like it's certainly the early part where it was. I was really buying watches because I wanted to learn to, you know, service them, to fold find, to replace the necessary parts, to identify mm. the problems. There. So they weren't the most interesting watches. Now I'm a bit more particular and I do try to only put watches on our website that have some like interesting bit of history or there's, like, there's always a reason to them. If I've yeah. got a watch that I've bought purely because you know, I wanted to learn that movement or something, then probably that gets disposed of through eBay or ends up mm. in a drawer or, you know. Um, but yeah, so it's it started as a kind of side project. I, I often wish I could dedicate more time to it because what tends to happen with the vintage watches is I'll service a few of them and then photographing them is the bit that always takes time. So I'll get five watches, seven watches together, serviced i'm happy with them they're ready to go i'll photograph them i'll put them on the website and then they'll sell out or they'll sell through in like in a faster amount of time than it would take me to do the next seven watches yeah. so it's always a sort of declining yeah i always feel like i'm chasing my tail a bit like trying yeah. to repopulate the vintage part of the website and i'm always conscious that like it it's not our main business like it's yeah. a thing that i love to do and you know because i'm interested in it and i like the sort of intellectual challenge of servicing a watch and you know all of that stuff and i, I like learning about the history of them and particularly like smith's watches that really we've done a lot of who 
I like that they were the last British yeah. watch brand and they made nice watches. Like now everyone thinks only the Swiss could ever make a watch because that's what their marketing would tell you. But actually, you know, mid 20th century, the American watch industry was huge. The British watch industry was still not quite in terminal decline. And, you know, there were these other sort of parts of it. Um, yeah. I think in a, in a way that I know you're saying, obviously it's very much like kind of conscious that it's not part of what you do. I think for me, before I would like really knew like anything about Mr. Jones, I think I'd like seen, I think it was the perfectly useless afternoon was like featured in her dinky or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to have a look at this company. And like, I was looking through your stuff and then seeing that you had that vintage watch kind of segment and like having a troll through that it almost like I don't know it kind of gives a bit of uh, what's I don't know what the word would be almost like prestige like I think it's hard for a modern company to to kind of come out and compete with the very much the established like watch world so it kind of gives like I would say it kind of gives credit to what you're doing, especially because it's so vastly different, but you're mm -hmm. showing that you have that respect for the, the watchmaking side of it, as well as the design side of it. it, it was, I, 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 yeah. yeah, I guess so. Like, I guess traditionally designers who've come to the watch world haven't really invested much time in understanding about the watch. They've yeah. come in, they've designed something and they've kind of, whatever movement goes with it they don't care they're not interested yeah. they're like eh, whatever like and yeah i i agree like i think i think it, i yeah it's interesting to hear your thoughts on how they interact because i guess in my mind i always think they're quite separate i always imagine that the portion of people who come to the vintage part of the website they like come there and go straight, straight. like i don't imagine there's a lot of overlap oh interesting i, know, actually, I, I never like obviously the, the number of customers who buy vintage watches from us is very much smaller than who would yeah. buy the Mr. Jones watch. So I, I, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> it was one of those things that for me, like if I was like umming and ahhing about it, for me seeing that you have that vintage watch side would definitely make me feel far more comfortable purchasing one of the the modern ones yeah definitely that was that was some, that was like the first thing i thought when i went on the website actually i was like no no you're making me, you're making me think people like look at it and think ah it's really cynical smart like marketing <laughs> thing they're like they're making this association in people's minds with these kind of mid because like what i like is a mid-20th century swiss brands i think there was a real um high point like switzerland in the second world war obviously was neutral and i always get the impression that they spent the watch company spent most of the Second World War in R&D, like working on new stuff. And then there's this sort of blossoming through the 40s, 50s. By the 60s, I sort of lose interest a bit. But, you know, the vast majority of this watch landscape you see now, the Rolex, like iconic models, the Speedmaster and stuff, they're all from the 50s. Like yeah. it was this real like flowering of, of kind of creativity and the technical ability they had for the manufacturing. and like it was all these kind of parts coming together. My interest is like less in contemporary Swiss production stuff because I feel like fundamentally, like you've got like everything was done then, and now yeah. you're like 
pushing on the edges a bit. But um, but yeah, I do have enormous respect for, for that period. And I think it's easy to be kind of rude about the Swiss and like, you know, yeah. like everyone hates the, the sort of Goliaths. So it's easy yeah, to, that's, to, it's easy to punch yourself. up, right? Easy exactly. to punch up. <laughs> but, but actually, like, you know, the stuff they did in that sort of 50s heyday, like those companies, that sort of world, incredible, like incredible sort of creativity and um, design. And, you know, there are outliers who did really odd stuff like Jaeger Kutra, I was thinking in the 50s were a weird company like they made a whole bunch of really weird products but mm. you know fascinating for it and i guess it i guess what i see in that part of the history of watches is a, a sort of risk taking that you don't see now it feels like now everything's much safer and it feels yeah. like there are layers of bureaucracy and stuff because like in the 50s they were like should we do this yeah why not let's give it a go let's or like zenith like let's make a 30 millimeter chronometer grade movement Will it sell? I don't know. Like <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah. We'll make it. We'll make it anyway, and see what happens. No, that 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 makes sense. I think that's really interesting talking about that. Whereas now, like you imagine, somebody's designed a watch, they have to get it through a whole room of suits before it's anywhere close yeah. to even like prototyping or whatever. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. And I guess the irony of that is, it would be so much easier for them to sort of sample stuff and like you think how difficult must it have been back in the 50s to develop a new watch movement to like start from scratch? Like, it must have been horrible. Like you, they would start with all these paper drawings and then it yeah. would have to be translated into sort of dye tools and like, like it's <laughs> years worth of stuff. You think now they could design it on screen, machine it, CNC machine it. Like I'm sure that production, that sort of development process could be so much faster. And yet they don't really do odd experimental things like it it feels very safe like I guess there's experimentation with materials and stuff but I have to say that interests me less mm. I think, I, um, it feels like all of the like interesting and kind of quirky stuff they do or is always now kind of confined to like um like watches and wonders or like the, what's it yeah it like so one just one watch the, yeah the and they sell for millions watch, yeah, yeah mm. only watch that's it they, that but again because of the nature of that it's so inaccessible to a consumer it's like i imagine most people don't have three million pounds to, <laughs> to spend on a watch <laughs> at an, at an auction yeah. yeah 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 no that's interesting that i do have a very um very selfish question to ask actually so um <laughs> when i was going through um my questions i was like over dinner i was speaking with my partner about them and this one really stuck out so it was do, do you have any kind of plans or have you thought about making like a a wall clock or like a table clock size thing as opposed to like a wristwatch we uh we did do some clocks okay like back in what are we talking about like 2011 2012 okay so so we did like two strands one strand was we made like a remember you will die clock so Mm. we had the the, sort of the hands and stuff in clocks you can't get to drive disc hands or you could but they'd be very small because disc uh, hands are actually much heavier than metal hands yeah need much more torque to drive them clock mechanisms are made to drive you know the the yeah. weight of hands that they would expect um so there was some sort of metal hand with um like a piercing for the letter forms and stuff but it had to be a continuous piece of metal and then with like printing on it 
it, like they sold all right, but mm. I think what we learned from that was that, and we we also did a version of Cyclops, the the sort of one-handed watch that really was kind of inspired by Chromacron. But again, it on the on our Cyclops watch, there's like a hoop that passes around the edge yeah, that marks yeah. out. So on the clock version, that has to have like a bit uh-huh. of metal connected yeah. to the center. So it it didn't have that sort of magical like floating part. It was like it's like a hand, but with a it's like a magnifying glass. Sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so w- what we learned from doing those two is that people will buy multiple watches. Not many people will buy multiple clocks. Yeah, that's true. I, I said I said there were practical things about watches, like watches small and easy to ship clocks yeah. not very small and easy to ship like yeah. a box of clocks to store takes up quite a lot of space like you could store 500 watches on a shelf easily 500 clocks you need like a room, a room. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so so there were kind of practical things that we didn't like about them um mm. we did do another set so that i i guess on part of me i i felt like we hadn't really invested in like the clock as an object. We'd just done derivative versions of our existing Your designs. Watches. Yeah. So we did do another um, set of clocks that were like countdown clocks. So they, rather than showing you the date, you had like a numerical counter that you could set up to 999 days in advance. Oh. And each day it would count down. So it was like a flip clock mechanism yeah. underneath like a fairly conventional you know hour a minute hand display and then there was a whole set of different um presets that you could set it to like 30 different things like events like the party holiday graduation all these different events so that i feel like we did invest a bit more in thinking about clock and like making so the clock kind of sits in your space and you, you maybe don't look at it every day, but when you look at it and then you look and see something that you're counting down to, and that's a kind of a nice moment. Like an exciting I mean, they, thing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they sold a bit better, but like, again, not not super small to sell, like to store. Yeah. They were, it's interesting. Really... I hadn't even considered the the difficulty in like the, the function of it. Like, as, we've, as we mentioned earlier about the kind of disk drives being... I would say at the heart of what you do, like mm. knowing that that just doesn't translate to a, a larger mediums really. I hadn't even considered that really. Yeah, like for a long time as well, the Chinese factories would tell us the largest disc we could produce was 25 millimeters, which is why we updated the case. Oh, actually, you, you will have probably, do you get the watch from Emily recently? Uh, yeah, it was last week. Oh, fine. Yeah, yeah. So we updated the case like this time last year. Okay. But initially, we used to have to have a 28.5 millimeter glass and we print like a little border on it to hide the edge of the disc. And then, uh, okay. so the, and, and in order to get the case up to 38 millimeters, it was just quite a wide bezel because, mm. you know, we had to bridge that gap between 28.5 millimeter glass and 38 millimeter case because 38 millimeters even is quite a small size for you know a man's watch it's a good unisex size so yeah so the watch you've got has a 32 millimeter glass and it just it allowed all the designs to breathe a bit more because we yeah so we've been told this that we couldn't do this bigger than 25 and we'd gradually like 
push that out. So the, the glass was 28.5 millimeters. We were doing 27.5 millimeter discs before. And then we did tests on like larger and we were confident that like day one and a half we, we could do. Um, mm. I think we could even go a bit bigger than that. But yeah, like watch movements are made to design tiny metal hands, which yeah. need really, really low amount of torque. A disc is a sort of different proposition because it's just a lot larger. And yeah. you've also got the added complication that with two hands, they're only going to pass over each other once per hour. The discs are constantly above each other. So if they're very slightly off square, they'll rub against each other. And then that yeah. really, um, that will make the timekeeping run slow. Yeah. So yeah, Fritch, are... yeah friction's like the number one enemy of watchmakers, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. That's yeah. really interesting. So okay, yeah, well, clocks, I'll have to park my uh, my dream of a massive uh, <laughs> disc ran walk. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think also like the so friction is the enemy of watchmakers. Our other enemy is like dust, like dust uh, okay. on discs. And I just think like a clock sized disc, like even a quite <laughs> a modest sized clock, like it's it's That's a hard big surface. to get. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to get the discs for the watch clean, totally free of dust when they're assembled. I'm just mm. thinking that you'd have to have like a lab, yeah. right? Like an airtight kind yeah. of lab environment or something. I yeah. actually you probably would, yeah, like a clean room environment. Yeah, mm. yeah, I feel like I'm bringing more problems than I am solutions for, for, for the design. But, but, and, and, but then, and then we come back to like. Okay, it's a clock. So people buy one clock and they don't like to spend loads of money on a clock. So yeah, you've got this like, and it's really expensive to ship. And uh, <laughs> you're like, I mean, it, it sounds like trivial and stupid, but it's like, it's kind of a problem. Yeah, you know, yeah, if, Matt, if, you've right. got, if you've got like a low value item that's really bulky and you, and like most of our customers are international. Like I, our domestic, like UK customer base, I think is about 30% of all the watches oh, we sell. That's like all, almost half the watches we make go to the, the United States. Mm. So yeah, the logistics of how we would, yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. And that's before, yeah, that's before you start carving up half your space to be a clean room and everyone's exactly. in those big suits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> the shoe covers and the hair nets and everything. I'm imagining yeah. um, your, your watchmakers, you know, with those like um, those cases with the rubber gloves that you kind of go into. Yeah, yeah, like oh, the sandblasting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ooh, yeah, probably. This, yeah. <laughs> for yeah, this, pro uh, probably not going to happen yet. Okay, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to let my partner down when I uh, talk <laughs> talk to her about about the interview. <laughs> I think the um, the final thing really. Um, I, I have to ask. I think I've already sent you across the the Wonder Wall. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I think I have you got that? Yeah. So this mm -hmm. is like again a bit of a tradition. Generally, what we do is at the end of an episode, we'll just stick the watches that we've been kind of talking about onto the onto the wall. Though we're very conscious that it's not a review thing because we haven't most. I think most of these we haven't had hands-on time with. Um, okay. But it's sort of like a I guess like a cool wall almost you could call it. Um, mm. I wanted to know if there were any kind of glaring omissions or mistakes in your opinion that we've made. Um, it kind of works. It doesn't work on a Y axis. It's just 
your, your excellent okay. <laughs> so it's not very scientific yeah any kind of like what you you're asking me like do i agree with your place i mean the yeah the bell and ross is that the bell and ross skull watch with the metal hands yes yeah i mean obviously that goes like even a bit further to the right for me I, that that's hamilton that hamilton doesn't look that grim to me i, the, I don't uh, know this it's uh, a military so the, looking one yeah the interesting thing with that that was a um a collaboration that they did with ubisoft for the far cry video game um oh, okay and yeah it was like it's weird because like i always think of those as being quite small like they're field watchers but that one was mm. really big and then i think in the game there's like loads of weird product placement of it and stuff it was oh, yeah okay. it was more the the kind of context for that one i guess was what pushed it down the way i mean the the amiga broad arrow like fake military one i think is like i would push that further to the right i just think like they've got a heritage making military watches like they don't need to stick the their own. on like a, <laughs> yeah like what um yeah. i mean i like the max bill youngums i would push that i mean it's not a grail watch because a grail watch to me implies like scarcity and a high expense like, yeah you know it's quite an affordable watch but it's a beautiful design i like max bill a lot i also I don't like think, the um I feel like we don't have... Is that not Max Bill? Yeah, I think it you're looks thinking... looks like a different brand. Yeah, it's, it's Sternglass. That's okay. the reason it is where it is as well, because I... Okay. Max Bill is like one of my favourite watches, I think, the the Young Ants yeah, Max Bill. So yeah, if if we get one of them on, that's definitely going to be way up the chart, I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what else am I saying? Oh, the clock. I know that clock. The, it's half past seven. I like that a lot. Yes. Yeah, Who the Q... Um, what are they called? I think they're called clock, but spelt with a Q. So it's like, oh, okay, yeah, they're they're quite interesting. I think as well because they kind of come or kind of similar to what we were talking about, and they're more about like the design as opposed to just being a wall clock, right? Mm. They're quite I'm, provocative. I'm, I'm sure they would have a lot to say about the complexities of warehousing loads of clocks and there are. Um, yeah think about storing thousands of them that's that's exactly. going to be enough right <laughs> but actually they're quite expensive aren't they but actually in, yeah they are watch, expensive compared to a watch they're not that expensive but then like there's a really different perception around clocks I, yeah like they're a few hundred pounds i think aren't yeah they? yeah well it's like so, the um the young hands one that we've got in grail that young hands egg timer I think that's mm. like 200 and something quid, which is kind of about what is right, I would say, for a war clock. But yeah, but the... it's funny, isn't it? But but most people would go, pay 200 pounds for a war clock. What? You're mad. Like, because <laughs> the perception is like, but if you said someone, I paid 200 pounds for a watch, they'd be like, hmm, no, you got cool. a good deal. Like, you... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cheap. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I um, think those um, those key locks run at like fifteen hundred around that mark. So yeah, they're way way up there. But you know, like there's so many watches at the fifteen hundred pound. Like yeah. it's it would be quite unremarkable. Absolutely. Um, oh, that Graham Chronofire, I loathe. Like just <laughs> it's just fussy and like <laughs> yeah. bits stuck on the side and yeah. Um, I think that was for a uh, Sylvester Stallone episode we were doing. We were trying to we were trying to find a watch for him to wear in the new Rocky film. <laughs> I think okay. that was the one I brought to the table for that. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
What have you got here? I mean, Grand Seiko, like I like Seiko very much the brand. And like they, they had this, the Seiko grammar of design, don't they? The very comprehensive thing about how the faces and the faceting, the fasting the hands, the case, mm. how it's finished, like um, a very uh, sort of sophisticated approach to all of that. Yeah, I mean, it's not like the, the, uh, the Seiko fives, right? They have to follow the five principles of watchmaking mm. or something. Like, yeah, it's really interesting when you start looking into all that stuff. I guess I like that Seiko are sort of becoming more prestigious as a brand. Like I think they, you know, they they're one of the few companies that make absolutely everything. They make their own oil, don't they? For the yeah. lubrication and stuff. It's I pretty amazing. I'll, you've got to respect that. Absolutely. Um, and they're willing the... to do stuff quite differently as well, right? Like with the, mm -hmm. especially with their dials, they do really. I think if you were going kind of high end, but for an interest in dial. And Seiko, for a lot of people, would be the first place they stop now, which is is really cool, actually. I I also, I mean, it might be wrong, but I imagine they're a bit less cynical than the Swiss. <laughs> like, like, you know, a bit less just, yeah, we just, what could we, how high a price could we squeeze this for? Um, next to it is the Hajime, I don't know what his surname is, the Japanese designer, isn't it? That's one of yes. the diffusion line watches that he yeah. has. Because he makes those one-off um, pieces, but I, I mean, I love his stuff. I, I actually bought in. I so when I used to make the one-off pieces for exhibition, I used to go to Japan quite a lot, like uh, for exhibitions and some different kind of work things. Um, and I did buy so the end of my one-off pieces for exhibition and the start of my watch world like kind of overlapped. But I mm. did buy a really nice um, Japanese domestic market book that he published on the creation of Japan's first tourbillon wristwatch mm. like he and he I mean I can't read Japanese so all I can do is go by the pictures but it, it looks like he spent a lot of time working with CNC tool makers to make a precision like milling bit that would be small enough and precise enough for his needs and then he worked with a a micro precision ball bearing company to make i think instead of jewels in some parts of the movement he used ball bearings but really tiny okay. little ball cages wow. and stuff. but as i say i can't read japanese but this is my understanding from <laughs> so what, like what you what, get from the pictures what, what seems to be <laughs> happening in the pictures um but yeah i, I like it so very much yeah uh, that one is the that's the corona actually corona tokyo so that's a yeah, yeah, it's the diffusion line, isn't it? And he releases like sort of finite number batches. Yeah, they're all limited edition. And yeah, that that one was particularly interesting as well because it like the way the dial is done, it's got a like this ancient kind of Japanese treatment oh, on it's it. It's the lacquering, isn't it? Yeah, 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 where it kind of like changes over time and reacts to UV and stuff. It's, yeah, it was really interesting. Ooh. Yeah, I, mean, I think like his model is really interesting. Like it's, I guess the, I, I, it's not quite the antithesis of Roger Smith, but it's like if Roger Smith did a diffusion line as well, like, so I guess, you know, he has the one-off pieces as like a halo product. And then yeah. the, I'm talking about the Japanese guy and then mm. his diffusion line as, as the sort of the tangible thing that most people who don't have can, can, yeah, millions. a million quid to spend <laughs> on watch. Yeah, that's fair. 
I mean, the Patek World Timer, I like the 50s ones, like a contemporary Patek Philippe World Timer. I just like, like what I like about World Timer is, is the, that association with the early jet age and the idea that you might, like, then it's kind of exciting. It's this a romance of travel. Yeah. Now you're like, eh, not. I, I, yeah, I, I also think Patek Philippe, like, there's something about the graphic design that they just get really wrong and interesting I, I, this is a I, bit of a hot take i would say going, going I, know, off the I, I don't know i don't think it is i, I spoke you know, I, I met a guy who was um he was doing his phd in typography and he was doing a special like focus on watches mm. and i had a conversation with him about particularly and we were debating i there's this he was saying there's a kind of legend that the wife of one of the directors took over the graphic design at some point in the 80s and that's when it all like went, it all went downhill <laughs> i a... don't know if that's just misogynistic nonsense but yeah. there's definitely there's clearly a moment where either they change the design team internally or they start with working with an external design consultant where it just goes like yeah no really? and, and they're like they're they're 50s watches beautiful like very elegant very paired back and stuff the 80s ones they're like loud the text all too large it's all over the place and the contemporary ones i think have just continued that interesting that i'm gonna have to look into that now i, I want to learn yeah. about that a bit more <laughs> i i wish i could tell you more like who the guy doing the typography PhD. i was fascinated anyway doing a degree uh, like a PhD in typography I thought was amazing and he had a special focus on watches I was kind of hoping that eventually he would publish it and there'd be this book like the, yeah. the typography of the watch or something maybe there will be like I know some people take a really long time to finish PhDs I think yeah. I met him at least five years ago so he's either given <laughs> it's up a really or, long PhD <laughs> or the publisher didn't go for it yeah maybe we can publish it ourselves or something because I, I want to read I, that. <laughs> I, yeah, I just think it'd be fascinating. I, I think there would be a real sort of audience for it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, also, just, you know, the idea of this, there's so little that goes on to, like, traditional watch face. The typography is so key, like, and yeah. and it's so little discussed and and kind of considered. And so so many so many brands get it wrong as well. Like that, I would yeah. say that's the most common stumbling block is either having too much text or it just not working. I think it feels like anyway that some companies see it as completely separate to the dial design. And mm. it, it definitely isn't <laughs> like that. It's very much like, yeah, it's, it's no, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I. Not sure I know many of the other watches to either praise or slag off, if I'm honest. Yeah, well, there's some very what's, niche What's ones, the, sub, oh, the Tiger Panerai one, what's that? The Tiger Panerai. Ah, so yeah, a, again, a, that was a... Grand and great. Yeah, that was another one that was for the uh, Sylvester Stallone episode. And that was... Yeah. No, that's is actually it, like a, a cover that goes on mm. top and then like flips up like an old style pocket watch. Um, okay. but then all of the um like the gold filigree is done by hand on that one um mm. that was an interesting one for me because i'm not really the world's biggest panerai fan generally um i mean 
I like again. I like the original Panerais, the like yeah. divers for the Italian Navy. Like the idea of the gold Panerai or the like tourbillon Panerai. It's just like it doesn't make sense. Like yeah, it's like a it's, yeah. it's not your history. Mm, I yeah, I get that. I I I do always find that interesting. How I suppose if they they just want to keep going, right? They can't just like rest on their laurels and. I suppose since quartz crisis, you everyone went kind of luxury. So I guess it's just mm. an extension of that, right? It's with with a brand like Panerai or, or any of the like the Swiss tool watches, like. Yeah, I guess so. Like, yeah, it seems wrong to me, but <laughs> you're right. Like, that clearly makes sense for them. Yeah, yeah, uh, but it is a shame, and I think it's rare now to get like a really well executed tool watch in mm. yeah that competes really i mean but but then that part of that just goes back to everyone in the watch world is so aware of that history and everyone knows where they kind of came from and we're sort of not like the world of tool watches is sort of not really our world anymore like you know, <laughs> yeah, very true. action men divers like you know when yeah, everyone works at computers at desks now. Yeah, you? you it's kind of an excuse to do something interesting, right? Like you, you were talking about earlier, because there is that I think it I, it was an interview you'd done previously where you were talking about how your kind of company wouldn't have been able to do what you were doing if uh, like smartphones didn't exist where people had the time so like so easily. Um I thought that was really exactly. interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Like kind of yeah because people would need the watch for that functional aspect as the primary thing and it would be really difficult to to present to them the idea of a watch as more of a sort of talking point because yeah 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 I mean, absolutely yeah yeah i found i found that really fascinating well we're probably about done there really with with what i had prepared uh prepared sorry thank you so much for for taking part that's right Thank you yeah, for really persevering with the technical <laughs> Yeah, that's okay. That, that'll all come out in the edit anyway. So <laughs> didn't didn't even happen. <laughs> and I'm glad that Stanley got through the whole thing without barking. He oh, I did, I'd forgotten he was there. God. He was very patient. He's all like fast asleep. Oh. <laughs> Bless him. Hopefully he's not dreaming of greyhounds. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> he's looking at me like you woke me up, I get food now. <laughs> Yeah, no, thank cool. you so much for that. I feel like I've learned a, a crazy amount during during that. So very much appreciated cool. on my end. <laughs> You're very welcome. And <laughs> um, whereabouts are you based? Are you so in... we're in oh, Leeds. So are you in London? Oh, okay. No, no, yeah, we're all in Leeds. I mean, I was going to say, if you are down in London anytime, you're very welcome to come see the workshop, come see, like, oh, that'd be amazing. we're super happy to, to show people around. It's been difficult in the last couple of years, obviously, because of yeah. COVID and stuff, but everything seems to be, you know, relaxing a bit more now, and Definitely. yeah, you're very welcome. Oh, that, I mean, I'll, I'm, we're, we're recording tonight, actually, so I imagine if I, I mention that to the guys, we'll be planning a field trip, <laughs> so that, but that oh, would no, be dude. amazing. We would absolutely love that, yeah, 100%. Cool. Yeah, we're excited. I know we've got the um, the. I don't think it's been released yet. The new version of the Ricochet. 
Um, it's it kind of released been... today. Oh, did it get released today? Oh, yeah. that's exciting. Has it been? Has it gone well? Yeah, really well. Like, I mean, released today, but yesterday to the people on the waiting list. Right. And I think we had nearly a thousand people on the waiting wow. list. Wow, that's amazing. But that, which, which sounds a lot, but like that doesn't mean a thousand people are going to buy it. Like, all they've done is sent us said clicked a link saying send me an Registered email when it's interest, available. Sort of exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not like we sold a thousand of them. Like. <laughs> I would be winding this up quicker and being like off to the pub if that was the case. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it, it went so it went really well yesterday. We saw um, the waiting list. I think I can't remember numbers. Like maybe eighty people from the waiting list ordered, which is a lot. Like a thousand to eighty sounds poor, but actually, you know, we've had hundreds of people on the waiting list and then like ten order in the past. Like yeah. we were pretty happy with that. Um, and yeah, it's going really well today. So. Amazing. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We've, we're, we're now all on an Instagram embargo until we record the Mr. Jones episode because we want to have our first reaction to it in the in the flesh. So yeah, oh, we're, okay. all looking, we're all really looking forward to that. <laughs> cool. Yeah, but, but yeah, again, like, yeah. Let us know when you're done London and you get, come to the workshop, have a yeah. tour and yeah, see something. That would be awesome. We we were more yeah we're we're definitely gonna do that I think so thank you very much for that offer cool. yeah well again th- thank you very much for for being part of it and thank you for being so willing to kind of send watches out for review as well I know there's a a lot of companies that just aren't at all on board with doing that so I, we do you, really appreciate you will that. have been vetted by Emily like we get approached <laughs> a lot and we don't send out that many so wow. Emily's opened the doors to you she we're doing something right i think we've always been a bit nervous because i think quite a lot of what people who do like watch related media like via journalism or podcast or youtube or whatever it's always very again it feels quite like safe and very like i mean maybe professional is not the right word but very like pre-watershed I would say whereas mm. what we do is very much <laughs> not that it's like very just like general like you would if you were just chatting with your mates that's kind of like mm. the, the attitude we've taken to it so we've always been a bit worried that brands aren't gonna like that so to hear that yeah we got the clearance from Emily very much appreciated <laughs> but I think also like it's like the watch world is really conservative but that's great because like to stand out in that world is so easy like you know if we were a like streetwear brand like that's so hard to stand out and like because it's such a experimental you know creative world watch world it's so corporate like you do anything differently like oh weird wow what yeah what's this counterculture thing they're doing here (laughs) sticking it to the man (laughs) no yes thanks Thank, thank you very much for that and, and thank you for being so willing to have it go on so long I didn't even I hadn't even been checking the time I hadn't realised we'd come that I long mean, in that conversation I love the sound of my own voice I <laughs> do not envy whoever has to now so, try to edit it or yeah for the audio one out. that'll be me so it won't be too bad because I'm I'm very used to that now but yeah Nick's going to have a job <laughs> stitching together something with everything we've been talking about <laughs> cool alright I'm going to get on and give Sonny a quick walk. But yes, nice well, to meet you, Jacob. Yeah, nice to meet you too, mate. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> See you in a bit. <laughs>